Now, the Psalms have a, an overarching theme. In other words, if you're trying to articulate what the Psalms are about, what the theme of the Psalms is, uh, you can see it here in uh, Dr. Kendall Easley's statement where he says, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so uh, Dr. Easley is saying here that the Psalms remind us that if times are good or if times are bad, God is worthy of our praise. If times are good, if times are bad, God is worthy of our trust. That's the kind of God that He is. And so no matter what we're going through in life, we need to cling to God in trust and confidence, and we need to praise God with our life and with our lips. And so that's a a major theme of the Psalms. And remember, these Psalms, these chapters, are individual hymns. They were written to be used in corporate worship among God's people, the people of Israel. And so they're songs, and John, John Piper points this out when he writes... The Psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And so John Piper is making the case here for the emotional element of the Psalms, which is why the Psalms are so well loved. People connect with the different emotions they find in these Psalms. And so uh, we've made it to Psalm 62, which is, by the way, and I say this all the time, but it's one of my favorites, all right? It is definitely top 10, okay? Some of my top 10 favorite Psalms. It is wonderful. Uh, It says there in uh, the small letters before verse 1, to the choir master, so a reminder, this was written to be sung by a choir, according to Jedithun, which is probably a term... Of, of, of musical accompaniment, a tune that people would have known in that day and time. And then we see the author, a psalm of David. Verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will, you, will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly inwardly they curse, Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are grateful for this time to gather as a family and to step away from the busyness of life to just be still, uh, Lord, with our family uh, in fellowship and to be still before you as we study your word. And uh, Lord, let you speak into our lives. So God, I pray that you would do that, that you would move in a mighty way. 
and that you would bless us, that you would encourage us, that you would inspire us, that you would help us. Uh, Lord, just draw near uh, to us as we draw near to you, and we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 62. Now, we know this is a psalm of David. We don't know the exact historical background of this psalm. Some of the psalms list the historical background. We don't see that here, but we know it's an occasion in David's life which, uh, in which he was surrounded by enemies, which doesn't really narrow it down because so much of David's life, he was surrounded by enemies. He was betrayed by his son. He was chased by the Philistines. He was chased by King Saul. I mean, so much of his life, he was engaged in conflict and running from his life and felt the, the opposition of those who wanted to destroy him. Uh, but we get a sense for what's going on in David's life emotionally uh, in verse 3 when he says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? And so David's asking the, the question, how long? By the way, have you ever been in a situation that's so difficult, you're thinking, when is this going to be over with? That's what David's saying. How long is this going to last where these folks are trying to get me? And he, he compares himself to a, a tottering fence, a leaning wall. Uh, in other words, David here is reeling uh, with the, the hardships of life. It reminded me as I was studying this of Rocky. I don't know if you watched Rocky lately. I watched Rocky IV the other night with my boys, which, by the way, if you haven't watched that lately, you need to watch it for the historical value. Um, you may or may not understand that Rocky alone ended the Cold War. But that's a, that's a whole different, uh, different deal. Um, that's a joke. It was fiction. But anyway, uh, Rocky's fighting the big Russian, Ivan Drago. And, and uh, you know, there are these sequences in Rocky where he's being punched and battered, you know. And he's just he's leaning against the ropes. You know, he can barely stand up. And that's the kind of the image I had as I was studying this psalm. David was reeling. He was, he was being uh, pummeled uh, by life and by those who wanted to harm him. And so, uh, if we look at it from this perspective, we can uh, think of this psalm as three goals, or look in this psalm for three goals to strive for when you find yourself reeling. When you find li- find, find, feel like you're against the ropes, when you feel like life is very, very difficult, you're wondering how long it's going to last, there are three goals that you and I should seek or strive for in that situation. So let me give you these three goals, and then we will be through. We'll have some Q&A time as well, and then we'll be through. Number one, goal number one, rest in God silently. Rest in God silently. Look what he says in verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in what? What's the word? Silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Look in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in, what's the word? In silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. So David here uh, twice says, my soul is going to wait for God silently. I'm going to realize in the midst of my trouble that God is my rock. He's my fortress. He's the one that protects me. He's the one that provides for me. He's the one that helps me. And so I want to rest in that knowledge that God is for me. God is helping me. And I'm going to rest in that knowledge silently. Now, why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because godly silence is better than desperate speech. Godly silence is better than desperate speech. Often when we find ourselves in difficult situations... We try to change it with our mouth. 
we, we immediately try to manipulate the situation with our words to try to get the situation to stop or to change or, or whatever the case may be. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves in desperation, saying things uh, that are ungodly, uh, trying to control people and situations with our mouth. And, and have you discovered yet that that's really never effective to try to control somebody with your mouth? It just never really works out. Uh, over in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, the Bible's talking to women who find themselves married to uh, disobedient husbands. That's what it says there, men that are disobedient to the Word. And in that passage, Peter says, hey, don't try to, to win them with your speech. Win them without a word, he says. Show them your behavior, the difference Jesus is making in your life, and your behavior will change them, not your speech. And so we try to change situations with our speech, our desperate speech, and it never works out. And, 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 and Charles Spurgeon says, No eloquence in the world is half so full of meaning as the patient silence of a child of God. When people see you going through difficulty, but they know that you have confidence in God to the point where you are willing to be silent, not going on and on with your mouth, but silent because you are so confident in God's care and control, it really makes a statement. Your silence speaks volumes, you might say. And so, godly silence is better than desperate speech. Silence in the face of suffering is a powerful way to reflect Christ. Now, why is our silence a way that we can reflect Christ? The reason is because Jesus exemplified, Jesus modeled for us godly silence. Over in uh, Isaiah 53, the Bible says as he was being tried by Pilate and ungodly men, eventually to be crucified, it says, like a sheep that before its shearer was silent, he opened not his mouth. Even as he was being accused by ungodly men, he was being lied about, um, there were things that were false uh, and malicious being said about him, but he did not try to defend himself. He trusted in God, and he went to the cross for your sins and my sins. And so he exemplified silence. As a matter of fact, I was reading recently, I think it was in, uh, it was in Mark, end of, of Mark, and it was speaking of Jesus being before Pontius Pilate, and it says when Jesus did not try to answer the accusations against him that Pilate was amazed. He was amazed by his silence. And we know that we're supposed to follow that pattern because look with me over in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, New Testament. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Peter here is writing to suffering Christians. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. And so, when we suffer, we don't have to wonder how we ought to act. We can look at how Jesus suffered as a pattern for the way we ought to act. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so how did Jesus model for us uh, how you suffer? He was quiet. He didn't try to manipulate things with his mouth. He was silent and entrusted his life to our great God. So silence in the face of suffering is a powerful way to reflect Christ. So 
be quiet. Now, now, here's one thing you can say to kind of balance that idea of being silent when you're suffering. If you're going to talk, okay, talk to yourself. And yes, the preacher just told you to talk to yourself. Because that's what David does here in this psalm. Look what it says back in Psalm 62, verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence, from Him comes my salvation. Now notice there is a, there is a subtle change in verse 5 where he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. So in verse 1, he's talking about his soul. In verse 5, he's talking to his soul. You see the difference there? A real subtle change. But David here is talking to himself. And he's encouraging himself. Hey, as you go through unjust suffering, uh, you know, rest in God. Understand that God's in control. Understand that God cares. Understand that God provides. You don't have to talk your way out of this. You can be quiet. And David is talking to himself. He's speaking truth to himself. And so when we find ourselves reeling, we're against the ropes like Rocky. We need to learn to rest in God silently. Rest in God silently, just like Jesus. Secondly, when we find ourselves reeling, we need to trust in God consistently. Trust in God consistently. Two questions I want to answer here as I think about trusting in God consistently. Question number one, when can I rest in God? The answer, in the good, the bad, and the mundane. Look what it says in verse 8. Trust in Him at all times. You've heard me say that the word all is a small word with big implications. All means all. And David here is saying that the orientation of our life should be to trust God at all times. That's going to mean when times are bad, we need to trust God, right? We need to cling to Him. We need to trust God when times are good. Sometimes we forget to trust God when times are good because we think, well, life's good. I got this figured out. I got things under control. I don't need to trust God. But we need to trust God at all times. And we need to trust God in the mundane. You know, not a, not a valley, not a, not a mountaintop, but just, you know, day in, day out life. You know, Monday morning, you know, and just the you know, paying bills, going to work, you know, family life. We need to trust God. We need to trust God with every area, every aspect of our lives. We need to learn to trust God consistently where we realize no matter what's happening in our lives, we need God and God is our helper. Secondly, why can I rest in God? We talk about when, good, bad, mundane, but why is God the one that we can rest in? Well, let me give you some answers to that question that comes straight from this psalm. First of all, I can rest in God alone. He is sufficient. He is sufficient. Now, notice the repetition of the word alone here. It's really fascinating. And by the way, if you're reading this in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the, many of the verses in Psalm 62 start with the word alone. It doesn't kind of make grammatical sense to translate it like that. It, it, the, the sentence structure is different in our English translations. But in Hebrew, you would see this repetition at the beginning of the sentence. Alone, 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 and alone. So look what it says in verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Look in verse 2. He alone is my rock and my salvation. Look in verse 5. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. Look in verse 6. He only, that's the same word, same Hebrew word. He only or he alone 
is my rock and my salvation. By the way, it drives me bananas that it's the same word that was just mentioned the, ver- the verse before, and they translated it a different way, but that's a different... We'll talk about that some other time. Um, he alone is my rock. He only is my rock and my salvation. Notice the, the repetition, alone, 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 alone. Here's what David is saying. I've got God, and that's all I need. He alone is my helper. He alone is the one I trust. He alone is the one who will provide for me and protect me and watch over me. He alone is my fortress. He alone is my shield. He alone is my refuge. And this is a big deal, that we learn to rest in God alone. Because while we would all amen that, you know, God is sufficient for our needs, often that's not the way we live our life. It's like, I need God, but I also need this other stuff over here to kind of help me through, right? I mean, God, God, God's going to help me, but uh, maybe He's not on my time schedule, or, or maybe I'm not feeling it enough, because so I'm going to go over here and, and you, know, you know, try to get this person to help me, or this thing to help me, or, or some other avenue of life to help me. And what David here is saying is this, God is sufficient. He really is all that you need. James Montgomery Boyce writes, The most important thing about Psalm 62 is that the psalmist is making God his only object of trust. He's not trusting something other than God, nor is he trusting God in something else, or God in someone else. His trust is in God only. And that is why he is so confident. I think this is something Christians in our day especially need to learn. As I see it, our problems is not... Uh, the problem is not that we do not trust God, at least in some sense. We have to do that to be Christians. To become a Christian, you have to trust God in the matter of salvation, at least. It is rather that we do not trust God only, meaning that we always want to add in something else to trust as well. So we want to, okay, I'm a Christian, I trust in God, sure. That's the right Sunday school answer, right? But when it really comes down to it, when the rubber really meets the road, I'm really trusting in these other things as well to get me through my crisis. And let me give you a kind of a helpful matrix to think about um, things that may help us in times of crisis. Uh, God is the one who God is the one who delivers. God is the one who heals. God is the one who helps. God is the one who rescues. But God can use different tools to bring about that deliverance, that help, that healing, that hope, right? He can, he can do it in different ways. But here's, here's the subtle thing that happens. Instead of trusting God, we begin to trust the tools that He uses. that makes sense? So, uh, you have a, a medical diagnosis. And you ask God for healing. If healing comes, who's going to give you the healing? God is, right? Now, He may use medicine. He may use... Uh, medical professionals, doctors, diagnoses, all, all these different things. But don't, don't get it out of sorts. Those things are tools God uses. They, they are not the, the source of your deliverance, not the source of your healing. In, in other words, you're trusting God alone, right? He's the one that does it. Now, he can use different things. He can use miracle. He can use medicine. He can use other avenues. But we've we got to be careful that our, our trust is not in those things those tools that are in God's hands. Our trust should be in God's hands, right? Now, let me tell you a big area of this, and and I don't want to go too deep into this because I'm certainly not an expert. It's just kind of my um, observation through the years. Uh, You and I understand that um, drugs are being used at an all-time high to treat anxiety, depression, things of that, that nature. 
And I, I want you to hear me say this. Uh, I believe there can be physical things going on in which medicine can help people get through a dark time, through a, a difficult time. So you, you won't hear me saying that you never use medicine uh, in order to help you through a, a difficult emotional period in your life. But you got to be careful that even as you are uh, taking some sort of medicine to help you and maybe that physical issue going on in your life, that your trust is not in the medicine. Does that make sense? Your trust is in the Lord. He's the one that gives the healing. He's the one that helps. He's the one that carries. It's a real subtle deal, right? It's a real subtle deal. And what we find ourselves doing is, is oh, if I'm, going to, if I'm going to get through this valley, I've got to have the medicine. Well, the medicine can be a tool. It can be something God helps you with, but God's the one that brings you through the valley, right? You trust in God alone, okay? So that's, that's kind of a helpful paradigm maybe for you to think about tools that God uses versus God being the one that gives you the deliverance and gives you the help and gives you the healing. So why can I rest in God? I can rest in God alone because He is sufficient. He is sufficient. Secondly, I can rest in God's ability because He is omnipotent. Look in verse 11. Verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. So God has spoken about His power. David's saying, I've heard this uh, twice. Uh, I've heard the repetition of this wonderful truth. That power belongs to God. In other words, God is a God of absolute power and authority. The theologians use the word omnipotence to speak of God's power. That means that God possesses inherently all power. He's not trying to acquire power. It just is it's who He is. He has all power at His disposal. He's not, he's not you know, in some contest with the powerful in the universe to try to be more powerful than other people or other forces. He is all power. He is omnipotent. And so David here is saying, hey, as I go through this tough time, I'm against the ropes, I'm reeling, I'm tottering, I'm about to be knocked out. And yet I know that God has all power. So I can trust Him because He has the ability to get me through. I can rest in God's ability. Number three, I can rest in God's care because He loves me. I can rest in God's care because He loves me. Look in verse 12. Once I've spoken, twice have I heard this, power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Aren't you glad that God is powerful and loving? So if God was all-powerful but not loving, then His power could be used to, to harm us, right? Make our lives miserable. If He was loving and not powerful, He might want to help us and might want to bless us, but He, didn't have the, he wouldn't have the ability to do it, right? So aren't you glad that God is powerful and loving? Those are both key um, components of who He is. Those are His attributes. Uh, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 4.10 The Bible says God is love. That's who He is. He's, He's a God of love and He chooses to set His affection and His love upon us. And so God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. And so you can trust Him consistently. He's able to help you. And He, listen, He wants to help you. Because God loves you, He, he has your best interest in His heart. 
He wants ultimately what's best for you. He cares about you. He's on your side. He's a God that loves you. So as a loving Heavenly Father, He's always going to do the right thing for you, even if it doesn't make sense from your limited, finite perspective. You ever thought about some of the things that we tell our kids to do? Or cause our kids to go through? It doesn't make sense from their, their little perspectives. They, they can't understand why we're you know, making them do this or do that or go to the doctor or get shots or whatever the case may be. It doesn't make sense to them, but we know from our perspective what's best for them and, and we want them to go through those things because we love them. It's the same with God. God is a God of love. And David's saying, as I am reeling, I don't have to doubt your love. I don't have to doubt your care. I know that you are steadfast love. Lord, to you belongs steadfast love. And then next, why can I rest in God? I can rest in God's just resolution. He is righteous. Look in verse 12. For you will render to a man according to his work. So here's what David's saying. Don't, don't miss this. This is, this, is so, um, this is so encouraging to me. David's saying, God, you're judge. You're righteous. You always make the right decision. You always make the right call. And when the dust settles on this situation I'm going through, God, you're going to do the right thing. Good wins in the end, evil will be punished. And we can say by extension, when the dust settles on human history, when it's all said and done, good wins, evil is defeated, right? Why? Because God is a righteous judge. We don't have to wring our hands wondering if evil is going to win out. It will not win out. God is on His throne. He is a righteous judge, and He's bringing everything to the conclusion that He desires. And so David's saying, I can rest in that reality. So we can trust in God consistently. Why? Because He is sufficient, He's omnipotent, He loves me, and He is righteous. And so we see here in Psalm 62 that when we're reeling... We need to rest in God silently. We need to trust in God consistently. But third and last, we need to call others to trust in God constantly. We need to call others to trust in God constantly. Look in verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, O people. So instead of now talking to himself, David's talking to other folks. See the difference there? Just a little bit earlier, he's talking to his own soul. But now he's going to talk to some other folks. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us, say law. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are but a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. And so here's what David is saying. Uh, Hey, I'm trusting in God. And I think you, whoever he's speaking to here, I think you should trust in God too. He wants others to trust in God the same way he is trusting in God. This psalm speaks of the illusion of social standing by highlighting the reality of judgment. Look in verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. And so people think that life consists of what they achieve or where they arrive in life. Like if, someone's, if someone is in a, has a low social standing, they think, well, this is my lot in life. I've, 
I'm, my life is hard, my life is difficult, this is all that there is. And, and those that are higher on the social scale, they live in ease and in luxury and wealth. They're thinking, I have arrived, my life is good, this is, this is what it's all about. And David's saying, they're both wrong. They're both wrong. Whether you're rich or poor, your life is short, it's like a breath. So if, you're, if your focus is just on what's happening on this earth, you are missing it. One day, you will be taken up in scales. And when you're taken up in the scales of justice, when you stand before the judge, it's not going to matter whether or not you were rich or poor, or life was good or bad. What's going to matter is, did you trust God? Was the God of the universe your God? Or did you miss it because you were so caught up in your standing in life? Did you miss out on eternal realities because you were so just enamored with your life being good or bad. And so this psalm speaks of the illusion of social standing by highlighting the reality of judgment. This is a call to put away sinful living and confidence in money. Look in verse 10. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. So put away evil living, trying to manipulate life to make your life better. Put away... Thoughts that money's going to make your life better. Don't put your hopes in those things. Put your trust in God. In other words, it is vain. This is a great word for our culture today. It is vain to pursue social status or riches instead of God. It's vain. It's it's empty. It's it's meaningless. It makes no sense. Because you spend your entire life pursuing things that one day are just going to fade away. Like like, like the, the vapor of your breath on a cool morning. It's just going to just fade away that, that quick. And, and people live their whole lives consumed with this short life. And they miss eternal reality. That there is a God. That He's worthy of worship and praise. And He's made a way for us to know Him personally through His Son, Jesus Christ. People live their whole existence on this earth and they miss that. That which is most important. And so it is vain to pursue social status or riches instead of God. We have the privilege, you and I, of showing with our lives and sharing with our lips that our God saves and is the only one worthy of trust. That's why David says, trust in Him at all times, O peoples. Don't live your life for social standing. Don't live your life for riches. You need to make sure your trust is in the one true God. Because when that's the case... You can rest in God silently and you can trust in God consistently and then call others to trust in God constantly. I like what J.J. Stewart Perrone says. Scarcely anywhere do we find faith in God more nobly asserted, more victoriously triumphant, the vanity of man, of, uh, of human strength and riches more clearly confessed, courage in the midst of peril more calm and more unshaken than in this psalm. In other words, Perrone is saying, this psalm really puts into focus for us um, this short life in the context of eternity. That's the point that he's making. And so, what are you going to do when you find yourself reeling? When you're like Rocky, about to get knocked out. All right, Life is hard. You wonder how long it's going to last. Will you rest in God silently? Trusting God to figure it out. Will you trust in God consistently, knowing that He has the power and the love and the justice to come to your rescue? 
And then, will you allow your life to be a witness to others? Will you allow your posture through suffering communicate to those watching you that God is worthy of your trust? And by the way, when you're suffering, maybe like at no other time in your life, people are watching you. Right? When you're going through hardship, people are watching you. They, they want to see how you're going to respond. They, hey, they know you go to that old Longview Point Church down on the corner of Mackinville and Bahalia, and they know you claim to follow Christ, and, and, and they know that. And, and, and when you're suffering, you have a real opportunity for your lips and your life to speak volumes of how good your God is, how trustworthy God is, and how they need to put their trust in Him too through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 62 is wonderful. I love Psalm 62. A great psalm for when you find yourself reeling because of the hardships of life.